So we're going to be there in John 8. Probably figured that out already. If you've got a Bible close by, one on your phone, turn there. Uh, I want to focus on a couple things that John tells us in the story in John chapter 8. Glad you're here. It's good to see everybody. Hope you've had a good week, good weekend. I think we had a day yesterday with no rain, right? First one <laughs> seems like forever. It's good to be here today in your, your presence. Uh, one thing about tonight is going to mention, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, is that there won't be anything scheduled here at the building. We are going to provide, as we've done for the last, um, since March of last year, I guess, uh, until most recently, uh, we will provide a, a video guide with a short lesson and some songs. I do hope, as I put a note in the bulletin this week, that you will take time with your family, with perhaps Christian friends, and taking time to worship God and to uh, just reflect on, um, on, on who He is and, and, uh, and take some time for, for worship this evening at some point. And uh, you can use that guide that we're going to provide for you, or you may have something else that you want to use. But we do want to encourage everybody to take some time for reflection. Looking forward next Sunday evening to our first after quite a, quite a long break, because of COVID and everything, we're going to have our first Faith in Action event next Sunday evening, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, there will be a class here. If you'd rather stay in the auditorium and, uh, and be a part of a class, I appreciate Jerry Culberson is going to be teaching a, a class next Sunday evening in this room. On uh, He's made a lot of trips to the Holy Lands. If you've talked to Jerry, uh, you may have had a chance to talk to him about that. He's made a lot of trips. He's done a lot of archaeological digs, taken a lot of pictures, and he's going to be teaching a class uh, called Archaeology in the Bible on our faith in most of our Faith in Action evenings for the next uh, few months. And I appreciate Jerry being willing to do that. So you may be, maybe you want to be a part of that class. Um, also, we are going to have the Faith in Action event that will be downstairs. Dania Petrozella is uh, heading that up for... This month, we'll be preparing some gift bags for some ladies in our community who've recently been released from prison, and we're going to prepare some goodie bags for them and write some notes of encouragement to them as they uh, try to get back to uh, some normalcy in their lives and be, um, be the women that they want to be, be moms. I believe many of them are, are moms, maybe all of them are moms, and so we're excited about that opportunity, and we encourage you to be a part of that. So that's uh, what's going on tonight and uh, next Sunday night, and so I hope that you'll support this in whatever way that you can. All right, John 8. Don't you love this story? Isn't this awesome? I mean, this is a really cool story. And, and see what, the reason, one of the reasons I love it, and probably the reason you love it, is that we find in this story this picture of Jesus that is just so neat. And it's so, I don't know, it's so against the way he's often portrayed. I think there, and I'll get to this more later in a few minutes, but there are so many ways in which Jesus is misportrayed, sometimes by the church, by us, you know. Uh, but certainly out in, in, in the world that people have this idea of Jesus, and, and I think that image of Jesus is, is so often it's, it's wrong. It's just not right. And some of it's right, but it's just not, it's not complete. Sometimes people Jesus as, they picture Jesus as this like cosmic killjoy. Like he came to make you sad, you know. He came to take all the fun away from you. Like, he's just going around looking for somebody to be mad at. He's, he's, the main thing Jesus does in your life is he wants to find something you're doing wrong and make you feel bad about it. That's who Jesus is, right? And then I think sometimes Jesus is portrayed 
in the world today, maybe in the kind of the opposite end of that, that, that Jesus is, man, he doesn't have a problem with anything. He doesn't have a problem with anything. He's just, he's just like, he's so fine with whatever you want to do. He's okay with it because he loves you. And, and he's grace and kind and mercy and all that. And so he doesn't have a problem with anything. So you can basically do whatever you want to do, except for tell other people that they don't need to be doing something that's wrong. But you, you can do whatever you want to do because Jesus is okay with it. And that image of Jesus doesn't fly, not with the image of Jesus we have in Scripture. And so, I don't know, there are a lot of reasons why I love this story, and you probably love it too. Now, one thing I want to, it's kind of like the elephant in the room sort of thing, is that you've probably got brackets around this text. You see those brackets? Let's pause with me for a minute. I'm not going to stay here long, but I don't want you thinking about it the whole time. And you may be thinking about it if you see brackets in your Bible, okay? And the brackets in my Bible say this. They put brackets around the last part of verse 53 of chapter 7, or all of verse 53 of chapter 7, and the closing brackets are after verse 11. You see that? And my Bible says this. Earliest, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Now, if you've got a, I don't know, I'm not looking at it on a phone. I don't know if your phone Bible has that or if it's just in the printed Bibles or whatever. Now, if you're using the King James or the New King James, you might not have that. But if you're using a different one, you probably do. So, you may be wondering, why is that there? So, just, just a quick comment on that. Uh, because I don't, want you to, I don't want you being distracted by that for the next little while. I believe with all my heart and based on a lot of study on this passage that this text is a real event that happened in the life of Jesus. Okay, that's why I'm preaching about it today. I think it's a real story. It really happened. But there are questions about where it ought to be. Okay? And so when it says some of the earliest manuscripts, you know, you probably know that we've got the Bible based on a lot of different manuscripts. You know, more than 5,000 different Greek manuscripts. And what they do is they study these different manuscripts and they try to figure out what was in the original. And it's, it's incredibly accurate. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like they're just kind of guessing on things. But there are a couple of places where, this is one of them, there are a couple of places where the manuscripts are different, you know? And this is one of those where the earliest ones, which are generally more reliable because they get closer to the time, you know? That they're generally more reliable. The earliest ones don't have this passage here. And so it, it appears a little bit later on. So probably what happened is that this is a real story. This is, this is what most people, most scholars who believe the Bible believe happened is that this is a real story. It was written down at some point, probably wasn't written down by John, probably written down by someone else, but later it was put here because they recognized that it was true and it was right and it accurately represented who Jesus was and this was the actual event that happened and they put it right here. Now, the takeaway from that for you, I hope, is this. There's a lot of study that goes into making sure that the Bible represents faithfully what was originally written down. It's not a guessing sort of thing. It's not like, well, you can't trust your Bible. It's not that at all. But there are a couple of places where there are some questions. This is one of those places. But the question really is mostly hinges around where should it be? Should it be here? Should it be in Luke? Should it be at the end of John like, a, like an addendum? or whatever, it's not really a question about did it happen or is it accurate? Or does it accurately portray who Jesus was? All right, so I wanted to get the brackets out of the way before we study what actually happened here.
Okay, let's look at this passage. Now, <clears throat> there's a setup that's going on here pretty clearly. Um, we've already read it, Water read it for us, and so you've got the basic outline of the story here in front of you, in your mind already. There's a setup going on. These guys find this woman, and there are so many hints in the story that this is a setup. It's, it's crazy. Uh, they went to the Mount of Olives, verse 1. Early in the morning, he came to the temple. People came to him. The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So what in the world is going on here? A couple of things I want you to know that I think we need to know in order to read this right is that these guys are not interested in following the law in every respect. They do like some parts of it, and what they really want to do here, it's clear, is they want to get Jesus in trouble. And so the language is pretty clear here. That's why I titled the lesson this way, Caught in the Act. Some translations kind of put that phrase in there. The language is pretty clear that they had caught her in the act of adultery. Now, there were several things that had to happen in order for them to arrive at the conclusion that she needs to be stoned. You had to have two people who observed, who had the same observation of the act of adultery. They had to agree on all the particulars. And in fact, the rules of evidence were so strict, according to Jewish tradition, that it was really, really hard to get to this final pronouncement of capital punishment. Really, really hard. In fact, there's an example from Jewish tradition around this time of a woman named Susanna who was caught doing something under a tree. And it went to court, and she was ultimately acquitted because the two witnesses could not agree on the size of the leaves on the tree. That's how strict the rules of evidence were that they had to agree in every particular in order for them to reach a verdict of guilty. It just gives you an idea that this situation is one that was being pushed through, was being rushed through for some reason other than justice. It was being pushed through with an agenda, and that's, I think, why Jesus responds in the way that he does. Now, another thing about this is, because they say she des deserves to be stoned, is it means that she was, she was engaged. She was betrothed to some other man. And she was caught in the act of adultery with someone else while being engaged to someone else. So that is another kind of thing here that, that is a little bit relevant to what's going on. Um, the, the stoning, that was something that was reserved, according to the law, for someone who was engaged and was committing adultery. So when they brought her to Jesus, now just, I mean, do, do you see how awful this was? I mean, how, how bad this was? The purpose of the law was to protect the innocent and to charge the guilty. It was not to bring them in a situation like this to a place of shame. Can you, can you imagine what this would have been like for these men to take this woman presumably in a situation where she would have been undressed. They bring her to Jesus. They have, it seems as if they have no concern whatsoever for her. They don't care about her being forgiven. They don't care about her soul. They don't care 
about her as a person. She, for them, is just an object to get at their enemy. They want to use her to get to Jesus. Another question that we always have, and you've probably realized that, I hope, I hope you've thought about this at some point, is that where, you can finish this question, right? Where's the man? Where is he? Because here's the way it works. When two people are committing adultery, both of them are guilty. And I read, I read, and this, you don't have to read this to, to know this, but I read it in a couple of different commentaries on this passage, and we know by experience this is true, that societies have always held women to a different standard when it comes to sexual sin than they have men. And first century Jewish society was no different in many respects than our own. Whereas if a woman commits a sexual sin, she is perceived in a certain way. Whereas if a man is caught in a sexual sin or engages in sexual sin, well, he's just being a man. You know, that's just, that's just being a man. Whereas a woman, that's a different kind of standard. This society, and, and by the way, Jesus is having none of that. Okay? He's having none of this double standard stuff. In fact, the way he responds to this is incredible. We'll get there in just a second. But I want you to, I want you to know just a couple of things that are going on here uh, that, um, that, that help us to read it right. Another thing is, is, is sexual sin itself. Like, why is that the thing here? It's because they know, they know if they're going to have to pick out some sort of a sin, they know the way to get people upset is when some sort of sexual sin is involved. They know that the way the world works is, and the way religious communities work is, hey, you, you, we've, got, we've got sins we're not that upset about. We don't get that upset about gluttony. We don't get that upset about gossip. But bring sex into the matter, and we're going to get upset. Right? They see that. They know that. And so they know that the way they can get at Jesus and the way they can get people upset at Jesus is for him to be soft on sex, soft on sexual sin. That's, 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 it seems to me that's pretty clear what's going on here. And so this is a setup. It's a setup. So many hints here in the text, and Jesus' response is, is pretty amazing. And in fact, look at, look at what he does here, okay? They said this to test him, John tells us, verse 6, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Wow. Bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, 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 the traditional view here is that he was... Now, we don't know. All right, we, we don't know what he was writing. But bear with me just for a second. Traditional view is that he was writing Jeremiah 17, 13. Here's what it says. Those who turn away from you, talking to God, those who turn away from you, God, will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So it could be. It could be. They, they bring this woman here. They're hoping they're going to trip him up because he's going to get in trouble either way, they think. If he says she doesn't need to be stoned, then we can say, hey, he doesn't, he's not the Messiah. He doesn't even agree with what the law says. But if he says, yeah, she needs to be stoned, she needs to be killed, then they're going to say, this Messiah? He, he claims to love people and he's killing people. He's, he's bringing people to death. You know, they think they've got him. And maybe they look into the ground and they see these words. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe that's what he was writing. Truth is, we don't know. 
One other scholar says he thinks Jesus was writing Exodus 23.1. And Exodus 23.1 says, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Could be that. That makes sense, wouldn't it? That, that they were, they're bringing this woman here. Forget the man. He may have been standing right there with them. We don't know. But they're bringing this woman here, and Jesus is drawing in the dirt, and he's drawing this passage that says, you better not, you better not bring a false accusation. Or you, better not, you better not join in with this malicious accusation. Maybe he's writing that. Some people have speculated that he's writing the sins of these people who were, who were standing around. So he's writing gossip, and he's writing, I don't know, gluttony, and he's writing whatever. A million different sins we commit, you know? Maybe he's writing some of those in the dirt. We don't know. Imagine what, the, I mean, put yourself here. So they, they say this. What do you say? And Jesus ignores them. Imagine the silence, the awkward silence here. He stoops down and he starts writing whatever he's writing in the dirt. He just lets it kind of hang out there for a minute. And as they continue to ask him, <laughs> think, about, think about this scene here. They continue to ask him. So they, they're like, they can't let the question just stand. I mean, that would embarrass them. We've got crowds here we're trying to impress. And he's ignoring us. How dare he ignore us? <clears throat> and so they keep, they keep asking. They keep asking. They keep asking. And he stood up. And he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What in the world? Is he saying, maybe you're thinking this, is Jesus saying, oh wait, if we're going to accuse anybody else of a sin, we've got to be perfectly sinless. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, if you look at this in context, what, what Jesus is saying, I think, I'm pretty sure, is this. I know what you guys are doing. You don't care about her. You don't care about the law, ultimately. You don't care about her as a person. All you're doing is using her as a prop to try to accomplish your ungodly ambitions. And let me tell you something. If one of you is without sin in this deal, in this matter, if one of you has pure motives, if one of you, let the, first, let the one among you who is guiltless in this whole setup thing, you pick up the stone. The law said, the Old Testament law said, that the ones who make the accusation are the ones who throw the first stones. So Jesus is alluding to what the law said. But he also is honoring what the law said in many different ways. And that is the law is never meant to be an instrument, a weapon that you use to abuse certain people that you want to take advantage of and to protect those. So many principles on the law said you cannot allow the law to be used to hurt the poor or the marginalized and to protect the rich. Can't let it. It's not right. It's unjust. And so if any of you are guiltless in this matter, if you really have pure motives, if you really are trying to get to the truth here, then you pick up a stone. 
Now put yourself there. Let that question kind of hang in the air for a minute. And these guys don't know what to do with it. I think pretty quickly the older guys in the, in the, in the midst, they realize, oh, wait, we're, we're out of our league here. We don't know what to do with that. And so they walk off, followed by the younger ones who don't want to be left there by themselves. They've, they've lost the older guys with a little bit more respect in the community. And now they're just there, and there's silence, and people are watching and listening. And Anyway, eventually everybody walks away. The last part of the story, which is the best part. Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. So presumably... He was down on his knees, drawing in the dirt. He stood up to speak to them, and then apparently he went back down again. Verse 8, he bent down and wrote on the ground. They left. The woman is standing before him. And Jesus again stood up. So he's gotten down in the dirt. He stood up. He knelt down again in the dirt, and now he stands up again, this time to speak to the woman. And he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That greeting, woman, was not disrespectful. In fact, it was respectful. Jesus used a common word to address a woman. Same word he used in John 2 to talk to his mother. It's a term of respect here. Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? So he speaks to her. You know what he does here? He speaks to her as a person, as a human being, as somebody who bears the image of God the Father. He speaks to her not as an adulterer, not as a sinner, not as a less than, not as somebody for whom there's no hope. He speaks to her as a person. <clears throat> she had been treated for the last few hours at least by these men, these Jewish leaders, these these religious leaders of the day, she had been treated as a thing, as an object, as a prop. And now before Jesus, the creator of the world, she's a person. She's a human being. She's a woman. And she says, with respect, no one, sir or Lord, kurios is the word that's used throughout the New Testament for Lord or Master. No one, Lord, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, this is where we get to the heart of the text here, the story. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I, I want to I observe just a couple things about this because you've got to read the whole passage here. And we've got to read it in its context. We've got to read it in the context not only of John, but in the entire New Testament, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Don't you love the first part of that? No, I'm not going to join in with this, this, this party of judgment. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to condemn you. <clears throat> I'm not going to join in with these guys and using you as a prop, as a tool, as a weapon. I'm not going to do that. Isn't it amazing how Jesus treated people? You see this throughout. You see Jesus 
treating people who had been caught up in all sorts of things. That's why the tax collectors, that's why the drunks, that's why the prostitutes, that's why the immoral people, they were drawn to Jesus. That's why the lepers were drawn to Jesus because they found in him this heart of acceptance, this heart of love and compassion and kindness where Jesus could look at someone like this who had sinned, but he treated her like a person. I hope you see Jesus here. I hope you see him. And it might be the case that we have, I know it's the case, that we have people in the world today who need to see this image of Jesus because they think they're so broken and so messed up and they've made such a mess of things that there's no hope for them. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. They're dirty. They're tainted goods, you know. You know what? I hope we can get this message out to the world that Jesus, for, for Jesus, there is no one who's beyond hope. There are no tainted goods. We're all tainted goods. Just tainted in different ways. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I mean, the stories in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of Luke, so many of them get at this, get at this principle here. Um, you know, the woman the story, I think, I think, Ben, it was you who referred to this. I think it was you in the class maybe last week. Or recently, um, in Luke 7, 36 through 50, where uh, Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, they're having dinner, and, and this woman comes in. She's a woman of ill repute, a woman of the city, and um, she comes in, she starts crying, and tears falling down on Jesus' feet, starts wiping them with her hair. Just a scandalous, whole scandalous thing for her to be there, number one, for her to be touching his feet and all this. Um, but you know what? So often is the case in that story and throughout the New Testament the religious folks who, who got all their I's dotted and their T's crossed, they're the ones who are condemned. And the woman who's made oh, probably a, <laughs> just a whole host of mistakes, she's the one who leaves the story acquitted. The religious folks, presumably who have everything right, they're con condemned, they're convicted, whereas this woman who's made all these mistakes receives the mercy of Jesus. It's just so often that that... that that thread is, is just throughout the New Testament, this principle here. Neither do I condemn you. It is, it's such a beautiful thing. It's just, I hope you love that. I hope it touches. I hope, it, I hope it, it gets to your heart here. Because we're all there. We're, we're all the adulterous woman, regardless of what we've done. We're all her. <coughs> we've all been shamed. We all feel the guilt. We all feel the weight of this on our shoulders, thinking, man, I'm not worthy. And I, and I don't know God's just got to be so frustrated with me and certainly he's done with me after all this stuff and, 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 then we, and then we go there and we see in the eyes of Jesus not judgment but compassion and we hear him say to us no I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to condemn you but you got to read the whole verse right you got to read the whole response it's interesting here that did you know did you know that there have been various portrayals of this in movies over the years some of those movies stop at the end of this, at the end of this first part. Neither do I condemn you. They quote Jesus there, and they cut it off and don't read the rest of it. Don't, don't let Jesus in the movie read the rest of the statement. He doesn't say it. So we've got to read the rest of it. This is, this is the image of Jesus that is, that is complete, you know, and it shows us who he is. He says, neither do I condemn you, but he doesn't leave her there. 
And so he doesn't satisfy the 21st century portrayals of God, of Jesus, who really doesn't care that much about what we do. He just wants to love us, and, and oh man, it doesn't matter. He, he really doesn't, Jesus doesn't care about sin. He doesn't care about that. You see, we can't get that image of Jesus from, from John 8 either. Because he doesn't stop at the neither do I condemn you. He says, and from, from now on, sin no more or leave your life of sin. Don't persist. Don't keep doing this. And so what he does to the sinner, to all of us, is he brings us to this point. He, he extends compassion, grace, mercy, kindness, and love to us. And then he says, but I'm giving you a fresh start. I'm giving you a fresh start. You see, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Leave this life of sin. It's not what's best for you. This is not some sort of thing where Jesus is, is like, well, you know, I'm not going to condemn you, but you better do better. You better get your act straight. You better do better. It's not that. It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's, even, in the, even in the last part of this, don't sin anymore. Don't don't persist in this, there's compassion and love because what he sees in her is and what he sees in all of us is we so often chase after the wrong things that aren't good for us. This isn't like Jesus is trying to keep us from the good life. Jesus wants the good life for us. And he says you don't need to persist in behavior that is against the purpose for which you were created. Adultery, gossip, slander, gluttony, whatever, anger, rage, all these things aren't what God created us for. He doesn't condemn us when we come to Him. He transforms us. And He gives us the opportunity to live the life that He created us to live and that is best for us. So in the go and sin no more, there's compassion there because He's freeing us from the guilt so that we can live the life that we are created to live which is the best life. You see that? One more thing about this is notice the order of this. And I think this is powerful. He doesn't say, now, now listen to this. I don't know if you thought about this before. He doesn't say, stop sinning and I will not condemn you. It's not the way it's there. Get your act together and I will withhold the condemnation. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, I think sometimes we think, people think, maybe you think, okay, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to stop this sinning stuff. I'm going to, whatever it is, I am going to, I'm going to get my life cleaned up. <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm going to get washed, and I'm going, to, I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to get everything right. Once I get my stuff, my, my, my act together, then I'm going to come back to Christ, or I'm going to come to Jesus Christ. After I get, because I know he doesn't want me like I am, and so I've got to get all this stuff straightened out and fixed and sorted through, and then I'm going to sin no more, and then I won't be condemned. See, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus extends grace, which then leads us to a place where we see sinfulness the way he sees it. And so he extends grace that leads us to obedience. So don't think you've got to get all, all the stuff straightened out 
and then you come to Him. You see, truth is, we don't do very well at getting everything straightened out until we experience the grace, the unmerited, unearned favor from a God who smiles upon us. We don't do very well at the sinning no more part until we've experienced the no condemnation part that comes from His grace. That's the beauty of this text, is we see God, Jesus, showing us what grace and truth look like. And see, it, it just annihilates these false images of Jesus that are so prevalent in the world. One is that you better, you better get everything right, because if you don't, you're in trouble. Jesus is out to get you. He really wants to. <clears throat> destroys that one. And it also destroys the one over here that says Jesus doesn't care about sin. He just loves everybody and he, he wants you to live your best life, whatever that life is, whatever you want it to be. You just live it. He, he's okay with it, you know. Just be true to yourself. See, that's the Jesus over Annihilates that Jesus. Because Jesus never takes a flippant attitude towards sin. Doesn't do it because it's not best for you or for me. And so he's not going to turn away from stuff that messes us up because he loves us too much. And so it annihilates that one, it annihilates this one, and it presents this image of Jesus that is true and that draws us to him. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you're not a Christian today, uh, on his behalf, we invite you to come to faith in Jesus. Um, you don't have to get everything straightened out. Not for, you, don't, you don't get everything straightened out and then come to him. You come to him because you haven't gotten it all straightened out. You see, he extends your grace, his grace to you, and then he leads you to start a new life. He transforms you. He gives you new hope, a new life, new perspective. You see, if you want to become a Christian, come to him, and he will help you, and he will extend grace to you. It's a beautiful thing. I hope in this story you, you find this Jesus who is presented in the Gospels, and you find it to be a, just a, a beautiful and attractive thing. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And maybe you want to do that today, be baptized today, and we will baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. And um, as you ex just receive his grace and he gives his spirit to live within you and to help you to live the life he created you to live, we invite you today. Maybe you need to come back and ask for prayers because your life just hasn't reflected that of Christ and you want to come, come home today. Uh, we invite you to come home and we'll pray for you. Let's stand and sing this song.